This Story Girl, Chapter 7, How Betty Sherman Won a Husband. The rest of us did not share the Story Girl's enthusiasm regarding our call on Mr. Campbell. We secretly dreaded it. It was said he detested children. Who knew what sort of reception we might meet? Mr. Campbell was rich, retired farmer who took life easily. He had visited New York and Boston, Toronto and Montreal. He had even been as far as the Pacific coast. Therefore, he was regarded in Carlisle as a much-traveled man, and he was known to be well-read and intelligent. But it was also known that Mr. Campbell was not always in good humor. If he liked you, there was nothing he would not do for you. If he disliked you, well, you were not left in ignorance of it. In short, he had the impression that Mr. Campbell resembled the famous little girl with the curl in the middle of her forehead. When she was good, she was very, very good, and when she was bad, she was horrid. What if this was one of the horrid days? He can't do anything to us, you know, said the story girl. He may be rude, but that won't hurt anyone but himself. Hard words break no bones, observed Felix, Felix philosophically. But they hurt your feelings. I am afraid of Mr. Campbell, said Cecily candidly. Perhaps we'd better give up and go home, suggested Dan. You can go home if you like, said the story girl, scornfully. But I am going to see Mr. Campbell, and I know I can manage him. But if I have to go alone, and he gives me anything, I'll keep it all for my own collection, mind you. That settled it. We were not going to let the story girl get ahead of us in the matter of collecting. Mr. Campbell's housekeeper ushered us into his parlor and left us. Presently, Mr. Campbell himself was standing in the doorway looking us over. We took heart of grace. It seemed to be one of his good days, for there was a quizzical smile on his broad, clean-shaven, strongly-featured face. Mr. Campbell was a tall man with a massive head, well-thatched, with thick black hair, gray-streaked. He had big black eyes with many wrinkles around them and a thin, firm, long-lipped mouth. We thought him handsome for an old man. His gaze wandered over us with uncomplimentary indifference until it fell on the story girl leaning back in an armchair. She looked like a slender red lily in the unstudied grace of her attitude. A spark flashed in Mr. Campbell's black eyes. Is this a Sunday school? He inquired rather ironically. No, we have come to ask a favor of you, said the story girl. The magic of her voice worked its will on Mr. Campbell, as on all of us. He came in, sat down, hooked his thumb under his vest pocket, and smiled at her. What is it? he asked. We are collecting for our school library, and we have called to ask you for a contribution, she replied. Why should I contribute to your school library? demanded Mr. Campbell. This was a poser for us. Why should he indeed? But the story girl was quite equal to it, leaning forward. Because a lady asks you. Mr. Campbell chuckled. The best of all reasons, he said. But see here, my dear young lady, I am an old miser and curmudgeon, as you have 
well heard. I hate to part with my money, even for a good reason, and I never part with any of it unless I am to receive some benefit from the expenditure. Now, what earthly good could I get from your from your three-by-six school library? None whatever, but I shall make you a fair offer. I have heard from my housekeeper's urchin of a son that you are a master hand to tell stories. Tell me one here and now, and I shall pay you in proportion to the entertainment you afford me. Come on now, and do your prettiest. There was a fine mockery in his tone that put the story girl on her mettle intently. She sprang to her feet. An amazing change came over her. Her eyes flashed and burned. Crimson spots glowed in her cheeks. I shall tell you the story of the Sherman girls and how Betty Sherman won a husband, she said. We gasped. Was the story girl crazy? Or had she forgotten that Betty Sherman was Mr. Campbell's own great-grandmother? and that her method of winning a husband was not exactly in accordance with maidenly traditions. Mr. Campbell chuckled again. An excellent test, he said. If you can amuse me with that story, you must be a wonder. I've heard it so often that it has no more interest for me than an alphabet. One cold winter day, eighty years ago, began the story girl without further parley, Donald Fraser was sitting by the window of his new house, playing his fiddle for company, and looking out over the white frozen bay before his door. It was bitter, bitter cold, and a storm was brewing. But, storm or no storm, Donald meant to go over to the bay that evening to see Nancy Sherman. He was thinking of her as he played Annie Laurie, for Nancy was more beautiful than the lady of the song. Her face, it is the fairest, that ere the sun shone on, hummed Donald. He did not know whether Nancy cared for him or not. He had many rivals, but he knew that if she would not come to be the mistress of his new house, no one else ever would. So he sat there that afternoon and dreamed of her as he played sweet old songs and rollicking jigs on his fiddle. While he was playing, a sleigh drove up to the door, and Neil Campbell came un. Donald was not overly glad to see him, for he suspected where he was going. Neil Campbell, who was Highland Scotch and lived down in Berwick, was courting Nancy Sherman, too. And what was far worse, Nancy's father favored him, because he was richer than Donald Fraser. But Donald was not going to show all he thought. Scotch people never do, and he pretended to be very glad to see Neil and made him heartily welcome. Neil sat down by the roaring fire, looking quite well satisfied with himself. It was ten miles from Berwick to the bay shore, and a call at a halfway house was just the thing. Then Donald brought out the whiskey. They always did that eighty years ago, you know. If you were a woman, you could give your visitors a dish of tea, but if you were a man, and did not offer them a taste of whiskey, you were thought either very mean or very ignorant. You look cold, said Donald, in his great hearty voice. Sit nearer the fire, man, and put a bit of warmth in your veins. It's bitter cold this day. 
And now, tell me the Barwick news. Has Jean McLean made up with her man yet? And is it true that Sandy McQuarrie is to marry Kate Ferguson? Twill be a match now, sure, with red hair. Sandy will not be like to lose his bride past finding. Neil had plenty of news to tell, and the more whiskey he drank, the more he told. He didn't notice that Donald was not taking much. Neil talked on and on, and of course he soon began to tell things it would have been much wiser not to tell. Finally, he told Donald that he was going over to the bay to ask Nancy Sherman that very night to marry him. And if she would have him, then Donald and all the folks should see a wedding. That was a wedding. Oh, wasn't Donald taken aback? This was more than he had expected. Neil hadn't been courting Nancy very long, and Donald never dreamed he would propose to her quite so soon. At first, Donald didn't know what to do. He felt sure deep down in his heart that Nancy liked him. She was very shy and modest. But you know a girl can let a man see she likes him without going out of her way. But Donald knew that if Neil proposed first, he would have the best chance. Neil was rich and the Shermans were poor, and old Elias Sherman would have the most to say in the matter. If he told Nancy she must take Neil Campbell, she would never dream of disobeying him. Old Elias Sherman was a man who had to be obeyed. But if Nancy had only promised someone else first, her father would not make her break her word. Wasn't it a hard plight for poor Donald? But he was a Scotsman, you know, and it's pretty hard to stick a Scotchman long. Presently, a twinkle came into his eye, for he remembered that all was fair in love and war. So he said to Neil, oh, so persuasively, Have some more, man, have some more. "'Twill keep the heart in your teeth in that wind. "'Help yourself. "'There's plenty more where that came from.' "'Neil didn't want much persuasion. "'He took some more and said slyly, "'Is it going over to the bay the night that yourself will be doing?' "'Donald shook his head. "'I had thought of it,' he owned, "'but it looks a wee like a storm, "'and my sleigh is at the blacksmith's to be shod. "'If I went, it must be on Black Dan's back, and he's like a canter over the ice in a snowstorm as little as I. His own fireside is the best place for a man tonight, Campbell. Have another taste, man, have another taste. Neil went on tasting, and that sly Donald sat there with a sober face, but laughing eyes, and coaxing him on. At last Neil's head fell forward onto his chest, and he was sound asleep. Donald got up, put on his overcoat and cap, and went to the door. "'May your sleep be long and sweet, man,' he said, laughing softly. "'As for the waking, twill be betwixt you and me.' With that, he untied Neil's horse, climbed onto Neil's sleigh, and tucked Neil's buffalo robe about him. "'Now, best old girl, do your bonniest,' he said. "'There's more than you now hangs in your speed.' If the Campbell wakes too soon, Black Dan could slow could show you a pair of clean heels for all your good start. On, my girl. Brown Bess went over the ice like a deer, and Donald kept thinking of what 
he should say to Nancy, and more still of what she would say to him. Suppose he was mistaken. Suppose she said no. Neil will have the laugh of me then. Sure, he's sleeping well, and the snow is coming soon. There'll be a bonny swirl on the bay ere long. I hope no harm will come to the lad if he starts to cross. When he wakes up, he'll be in such a fine highland temper that he'll never stop to think of danger. Well, Bess, old girl, here we are. Now Donald Fraser plucked up heart and play the man. Never flinch because a slip of a lash looks scornful at you out of the bonniest dark blue eyes on earth. But in spite of the bold words, Donald's heart was thumping as he drove into the Sherman's yard. Nancy was there milking a cow by the stable door, but she stood up when she saw Donald coming. Oh, she was very beautiful. Her hair was like a skein of golden silk, and her eyes were as blue as the gulf water when the sun breaks out after a storm. Donald felt more nervous than ever, but he knew he must make the most of his chance. He might not see Nancy alone again before Neil came. He caught her hand and stammered out, Nelas, I love you. You may think tis a hasty wooing, but that's a story I can tell you a later, maybe. I know well I'm not worthy of you, but if true love could make a man worthy, they'd be none before me. Will you have me, Nan? Nancy didn't say she would have him, she just looked at him. The next morning, the storm was over. Donald knew that Neil must be soon on his track. He did not want to make the Sherman house the scene of a quarrel, so he resolved to get away before the Campbell came. He persuaded Nancy to go with him to visit some friends in another settlement. As he brought Nell's sleigh up to the door, he saw a black speck far out on the bay and laughed. Black Dan goes well, but he'll not be quick enough, he said. Half an hour later, Neil Campbell rushed into the Sherman kitchen, and oh, how angry he was. There was nobody there but Betty Sherman, and Betty was not afraid of him. She was never afraid of anybody. She was very handsome, with hair as brown as October nuts, and black eyes and crimson cheeks, and she had always been in love with Neil Campbell herself. "'Good morning, Mr. Campbell,' she said, with a toss of her head. "'It's early abroad you are, and on Black Dan, no less. "'Was I mistaken in thinking that Dan Donald Fraser said once "'that his favorite horse should never be backed by any man but him? "'But doubtless a fair exchange is no robbery, "'and Brown Bess is a good mare in her way.' "'Where is Donald Fraser?' said Neil, shaking his fist. It's him I'm seeking, and it's him I will be finding. Where is he, Betty Sherman? Donald Fraser is far away from here this time, mocked Betty. He is a prudent fellow and has some quickness in his wit and under that sandy thatch of his. He came here last night at sunset with a horse and a sleigh not his own or lately gotten, and he asked Nan in the stable yard to marry him. Did a man ask me to marry him at the cow's side with a milking pail in my hand? It's a cold answer he'd be getting for his pains. But Nan thought differently 
and they sat late together last night, and twas a bonny story Nan wakened me to hear when she came to bed, the story of a brawl lover who let him secret out when the whiskey was above the wit, and then fell asleep while his rival was away to woo the wind his lass. Did you ever hear a like story, Mr. Campbell? Oh, yes, said Neil fiercely. It is laughing at me over the countryside and telling that story that Donald Fraser will be doing, is it? But when I meet him, it is not laughing he will be doing. Oh, no, there will be another story to tell. Now, don't meddle with the man, cried Betty. What a state to be in, because one good-looking lass likes sandy hair and gray eyes better than highland black and blue. You have not the spirit of a wren, Neil Campbell. Were I you, I would show Donald Fraser that I could woo and win a lass as speedily as any lowlander of them all. That I would do. There's many a girl would gladly say yes, for your asking. And here stands one. Why not marry me, Neil Campbell? Folks say I'm a bonny as Nan. "'and I could love you as well as Nan loves her Donald. "'I and ten times better. "'What do you suppose the Campbell did? "'Why, just the thing he ought to have done. "'He took Betty at her word and on the spot, "'and there was a double wedding soon after, "'and it is said that Neil and Betty "'were the happiest couple in the world, "'happier even than Donald and Nancy. "'So all was well because it ended well. "'The story girl curtsied, until her silken skirt swept the floor. Then she flung herself in her chair and looked at Mr. Campbell, flashed her eyes triumphantly. This story was old to us, and it had once been published in a Charlottetown paper, and we had read it at Aunt Olivia's scrapbook, where the story girl had learned it. But we had listened entranced. I have written down the bare words of the story as she told it, but I can never reproduce the charm and color and spirit she infused into it. It lived for us. Donald and Neil and Nancy and Betty were there in that room with us. We had even forgotten all about Mr. Campbell. That gentleman, in silence, took out his wallet, extracted a note therefrom, and handed it gravely to the story girl. There are five dollars for you, he said. "'and your story was well worth it. "'You are a wonder. "'Some day you will make the world realize it. "'I've been about a bit and heard some good things, "'but I've never enjoyed anything more "'than that threadbare old story I heard in my cradle. "'And now, will you do me a favor?' "'Of course,' said the story girl, delighted. "'Recite the multiplication table for me,' said Mr. Campbell. "'We stared.' Well, might Mr. Campbell be called eccentric? What on earth did he want the multiplication recited for? Even the story girl was surprised. But she began promptly with twice one and went through to the twelve times table. She repeated it simply, but her voice changed from one tone to another. At each in succession grew tired. We had never dreamed that there was so much in the multiplication table. As she announced it, the fact that three times three was nine was exquisitely ridiculous. 
Five times six almost brought the tears to our eyes. Eight times seven was the most tragic and frightful thing ever heard of, and twelve times twelve rang like a trumpet call to victory. Mr. Campbell nodded his satisfaction. I thought you could do it, he said. The other day I found this statement in a book. Her voice would have made the multiplication table charming. I thought of it when I heard you. I didn't believe it before, but I do now. Then he let us go. You see, said the story girl as we went home, you need never be afraid of people. But we are not all the story girl, said Cecily. That night we heard Felicity talking to Cecily in their room. Mr. Campbell never noticed one of us except the story girl, she said. But if I had put on my best dress, as she did, maybe she wouldn't have taken all the attention. Could you ever do what Betty Sherman did, do you suppose? asked Cecily absently. No, but I believe the story girl could, answered Felicity rather snappishly. Chapter 8 A Tragedy of Childhood The story girl went to Charlottetown for a week in June to visit Aunt Louisa. Life seemed very colorless without her, and even Felicity admitted that it was lonesome. But three days after her departure, Felix told us something on the way home from school which lent some spice to existence immediately. "'What do you think?' he said in a very solemn but excited tone. "'Jerry Cohen told me at recess this afternoon that he had seen a picture of God, that he has it at his home in an old red-covered history of the world, and has looked at it often.' To think that Jerry Cohen should have seen such a picture often, we were as deeply impressed as Felix had meant it to be. Did he say what it was like? asked Peter. No, only that it was a picture of God walking in the Garden of Eden. Oh, whispered Felicity. We all spoke in low tones on the subject, for by instinct and training we thought the uttered the great name with reverence in spite of our devouring curiosity. Oh, would Jerry Cohen bring it to school and let us see it? I asked him that, soon as ever he told me, said Felix. He said he might, but he couldn't promise, for he'd have to ask his mother and if she could, if he could bring the book to school. If she'll let him, he'll bring it in tomorrow. Oh, I'll be almost afraid to look at it, said Sarah, Ray tremulously. I think we all shared her fear to some extent. Nevertheless, we went to school the next day, burning with curiosity, and we were disappointed. Possibly Knight had brought counsel to Jerry Cohen, or perhaps his mother had put him up to it. At all events, he announced that to us children he couldn't bring the red-covered history to school, but if we wanted to buy the picture outright, he would tear it out of the book and sell it to us for fifty cents. We talked the matter over in serious conclave in the orchard that evening. We were all rather short of hard cash, having devoted most of our spare means to the school library fund, but the general consensus of opinion was that we must have the picture, no matter what amount of money or sacrifice were involved. If we could each give about seven cents, we would have the amount. Peter could only give four, 
but Dan gave eleven, which squared matters. Fifty cents would be pretty dear for any other picture, but of course this is different, said Dan. And there's a picture of Eden thrown in, too, you know, said Felicity. Nobody but a Cohen would do it, and that's a fact, said Dan. Fancy selling God's picture, said Cecily in a shocked, awed tone. When we get it, we'll keep it in the family Bible, said Felicity. That's the only proper place. Oh, but I wonder what it will be like, breathed Cecily. We all wondered. Next day in school, we agreed to Jerry Cohen's terms, and Jerry promised to bring the picture up to Uncle Alex the following afternoon. We were all intensely excited Saturday morning. To our dismay, it began to rain just before dinner. What if Jerry doesn't bring the picture today because of the rain, I suggested. Never you fear, answered Felicity decidedly. A Cohen would come through anything for fifty cents. After dinner, we all, without any verbal decision about it, washed our faces and combed our hair. The girls put on their second-best dresses, and we boys donned white collars. We all had the unuttered feeling that we must do such honor to a picture as this. Felicity and Dan began a small spat over something, but stopped at once when Cecily said severely, "'How dare you quarrel!' When you are going to look at a picture of God today. Owing to the rain, we could not foregather in the orchard where we had meant to transact the business with Jerry. We did not wish our grown up we did not wish our grown ups around our great moment, so we betook ourselves to the loft of the granary in the spruce wood, with whose window we could see the main road and hail Jerry. Sarah Ray had joined us, very pale and nervous, having had, so it appeared, a difference of opinion with her mother about coming up the hill in the rain. "'I'm afraid I did very wrong to come against my ma's will,' she said miserably. "'But I couldn't wait. I wanted to see the picture as soon as you did.' We waited and watched at the window. The valley was full of mist, and the rain was coming down in slanted lines over the tops of the spruces. But as we waited, the clouds broke away, and the sun came out flashingly. The drops on the spruce boughs glittered like diamonds. "'I don't believe Jerry can be coming,' said Cecily in despair. "'I suppose his mother must have thought it was dreadful, after all, to sell such a picture.' "'Here he is now!' cried Dan, waving excitedly from the window. "'He's carrying a fish bucket,' said Felicity. "'You surely don't suppose that he is bringing that picture in a fish bucket?' Jerry had brought it in a fish bucket, as appeared when he mounted the granary stairs shortly afterwards. It was folded up in a newspaper packet on top of a dried herring with which the, ba the basket was filled.' He paid him his money, but we would not open the packet until he had gone. Cecily, said Felicity in a hushed tone, you are the best of us. You open the parcel. Oh, I'm no gooder than the rest of you, breathed Cecily, but I'll open it if you like. With trembling fingers, Cecily opened the parcel. We stood around, hardly breathing. She unfolded it and held it up. We saw it. Suddenly, Sarah began to cry. Oh, oh, does God look like that? She wailed. 
Felix and I spoke not, disappointed, and something worse sealed our speech. Did God look like that? Like that stern, angry, frowning old man with the tossing hair and the beard and the wood-cut Cecily held? I suppose he must, since that is his picture, said Dan miserably. He looks awfully cross, said Peter simply. Oh, I wish we'd never seen this, cried Cecily. We all wish that too late. Our curiosity had led us into some holy of holies, not to be profaned by human eyes, and this was our punishment. I've always had a feeling right along, wept Sarah, that it wasn't right to buy or look at God's picture. As we stood there wretchedly, we heard flying feet below, and a blithe voice calling, Where are you, children? The story girl had returned. At any other moment, we would have rushed to meet her in wild joy, but now we were too crushed and miserable to move. Whatever's the matter with you all? demanded the story girl, appearing at the top of the stairs. What is it, Sarah? Why are you crying? What have you gotten there? A picture of God, said Cecily with a sob in her voice, and oh, it's so dreadful and ugly. Look! The story girl looked. An expression of scorn came over her face. Surely you don't believe God looks like that, she said impatiently, while her fine eyes flashed. He doesn't. He couldn't. He is wonderful and beautiful. I'm surprised at you. That is nothing but a picture of a cross old man. Hope sprang up in our hearts, although we were not wholly convinced. I don't know, said Dan doubtfully. It says under the picture, God in the Garden of Eden. It's printed. Well, I suppose that's what the man who drew it thought God was like, answered the story girl carelessly. But he couldn't have known any more than you do. He had never seen him. It's all very well for you to say so, Felicity said. But you don't know either. I wish I could believe that it isn't like God, but I don't know what to believe. Well, if you don't believe me, I suppose you believe a minister, said the story girl. Go and ask him. He's in the house this very minute. He came up with us in the buggy. At any other time, we would never have dared to question a minister about anything. But despite cases call at any other time, we would never have dared ask the minister about anything. But despite case <clears throat> at any other time, we would never have dared to ask a minister anything. Desperate cases call for desperate measures. We drew straws to see who should go and do the asking, and the lot fell to Felix. "'Better wait until Mr. Marwood leaves and catch him in the lane,' advised the story girl. "'You'll have a lot of grown-ups around you in the house.' Felix took her advice. Mr. Marwood, presently walking happily along the lane, was confronted by a fat little boy with a pale face but resolute eyes. The rest of us remained in the background, but within hearing. "'Well, Felix, what is it?' asked Mr. Marwood kindly. "'Please, sir, does God really look like this?' asked Felix, holding out the picture. "'We hope he doesn't. But we want to know the truth. 
and that is why I'm bothering you. Please excuse us and tell me. The minister looked at the picture. A stern expression came into his gentle blue eyes, and he got as near to frowning as was possible for him to get. Where did you get that thing? he asked. Thing? We began to breathe easier. We bought it from Jerry Cohen. He found it in a red-covered history of the world. It says it's God's picture, said Felix. It is nothing of the sort, Mr. Marwood in said indignantly. There is no such thing as a picture of God, Felix. No human being knows what he looks like. No human being can know. We should not even try to think what he looks like. But, Felix, you may be sure that God is infinitely more beautiful and loving and tender and kind than anything we can imagine of him. Never believe anything else, my boy. As for this, this sacrilege, take it down and burn it. We did not know what a sacrilege meant, but we knew that Mr. Marwood had declared that that picture was not like God. That was enough for us. We felt as if a terrible weight had been lifted from our minds. I could hardly believe the story girl, but of course the minister knows, said Dan happily. We've lost fifty cents because of it, said Felicity gloomily. We had lost something of infinitely more value than fifty cents, although we did not realize it just then. The minister's words had removed from our minds the bitter belief that God was like the picture, but on something deeper and more enduring, then mind an impression had been made that was never to be removed. The mischief was done. From that day to this, the thought or the mention of God brings up before us, involuntarily, the vision of a stern, angry old man. Such was the price we were to pay for the indulgence of a curiosity which each of us deep in our hearts had, like Sarah Ray felt, ought not to be gratified. Mr. Marwood told me to burn it, said Felix. It doesn't seem reverent to do that, said Cecily. Even if it isn't God's picture, it had his name on it. Bury it, said the story girl. We did bury it after tea in the depths of the spruce grove, and then we went into the orchard. It was so nice to have the story girl back again. She had wreathed her hair with Canterbury bells, and looked like the incantation of rhyme and a story and a dream. Canterbury Bells is a lovely name for a flower, isn't it? She said. It makes you think of cathedrals and chimes, doesn't it? Let's go over to Uncle Stephen's walk and sit on the branches of the big tree. It's too wet on the grass, and I know a story, a true story, about an old lady I saw in town at Aunt Louisa's. Such a dear old lady with lovely silvery curls. After the rain, the air seemed dripping with odors in the warm west wind, the tang of fir balsam and the spice of mint, the wild woodsiness of ferns and aromas of grasses steeping in the sunshine, and with it all a, breath, a breath of wild sweetness from far hill pastures. Scattered through the grass in Uncle Stephen's walk were blossoming pale aerial flowers which had no name that we could ever discover. Nobody seemed to know anything about them. They had been there when great-grandfather King bought the place. 
I have never seen them elsewhere or found them described in any floral catalogue. We called them the White Ladies. The Story Girl gave them that name. She said they looked like the souls of good women who had had to suffer much and had been very patient. They were wonderfully dainty, with a strange faint aromatic perfume which was only be to be detected at a little distance and vanished if you bent over them. They faded soon after they were plucked, and although strangers greatly admired them, often carried away roots and seeds, they could never be coaxed to grow anywhere else. "'My story is about Mrs. Dunbar and the captain of the fanny,' said the story girl, settling herself comfortably on a bough, with her brown head against a gnarled trunk. "'It's a sad and beautiful, and it's true. I do love to tell stories, and I know, really, that they happened. Mrs. Dunbar lives next door to Aunt Louisa in town. She's so sweet.' You wouldn't think to look at her that she had a tragedy in her life, but she has. Aunt Louisa told me the tale. It all happened long, long ago. Interesting things like this all did happen long ago. It seems to me they never seem to happen now. This was in 49 when people were rushing to gold fields in California. It was just like a fever, Aunt Louisa says. People took it. Right here on the island, and a number of young men determined they would go to California. It's easy to go to California now, but it was a very hard and different matter then. There were no railroads across the land, as there are now, and if you wanted to go to California, you had to go in a sailing vessel, all the way around Cape Corn. It was as long and dangerous a journey, and sometimes it took over six months. When you got there, you had no way of sending word home again except by the same plan. It might be over a year before your people at home heard a word about you and fancy what your feelings would be. But these young men didn't think of these things. They were led on by a golden vision. They made all their arrangements and they chartered the brig Fanny to take them to California. Captain of the Fanny is the hero of the story. His name was Alan Dunbar, and he was a young and handsome hero, as they always are. But Aunt Louisa says he really was, and he was in love, wildly in love, with Margaret Grant. Margaret was as beautiful as a dream, with soft blue eyes and clouds of golden hair, and she loved Alan Dunbar just as much as he loved her. But her parents were bitterly opposed to him and they had forbidden Margaret to see him or speak to him. They hadn't anything against him as a man, but they didn't want her to throw herself away on a sailor. Well, when Alan Dunbar knew that he must go to California on the fanny, he was in despair. He felt that he could never go so far away for so long and leave his Margaret behind, and Margaret felt that she could never let him go. I know exactly how she felt. How can you know, interrupted Peter suddenly. You ain't old enough to have a bow. How can you know? The story girl looked at Peter with a frown. She did not like to be interrupted when telling a story. Those are not things one knows about, she said with dignity. One feels about them. Peter, crushed but not convinced, subsided, and the story girl went on. Finally, Margaret ran away with Alan and they were married in Charlottetown. 
Alan intended to take his wife with him to California in the fanny. If it were a hard journey for a man, it was harder still for a woman, but Margaret would have dared anything for Alan's sake. They had three days, only three days of happiness, and then the blow fell. The crew and the passengers of the fanny refused to let Captain Dunbar take his wife with him. They told him he must leave her behind, and all his prayers were of no avail. They say he stood on the deck of the fanny and pleaded with the men, while the tears ran down his face. But they would not yield, and he had to leave Margaret behind. Oh, what a parting it was! There was heartbreak in the story girl's voice, and tears came into her eyes. There in the green bower, Uncle Stephen's walk, we cried over the pathos of the parting, whose anguish had been stilled for many years. When it was all over, Margaret's father and mother forgave her, and she went back home to wait, to wait. Oh, it is so dreadful just to wait and do nothing else. Margaret waited for a year, how long it must have seemed to her, and at last there came a letter, but not from Alan. Alan was dead. He had died in California and had been buried there. While Margaret had been thinking of him and longing for him and praying for him, he had been laying in his lonely faraway grave. Cecily sprang up, shaking with sobs. Oh, I don't, don't go on, she implored. I can't bear any more. There is no more, said the story girl. That was the end of it, and the end of everything for Margaret. It didn't kill her, but her heart died. I just wish I'd hold of those fellows who wouldn't let the captain take his wife, said Peter savagely. Well, it was awful sad, said Felicity, wiping her eyes. But it was long ago, and we can't do anything good by crying over it now. Let us go and get something to eat. I made some nice little rhubarb tarts this morning. We went, in spite of new disappointments and old heartbreaks. We had appetites, and Felicity did make scrumptious rhubarb tarts.